Today's episode of Your Stories is brought to you by Field Notes. Field Notes brand, USA-made memo books and other products, including seasonal limited editions. Visit fieldnotesbrand.com or 400 North May in Chicago for more information. Thanks, Field Notes! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Garneau, and this is part one of a pretty special Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories episode, celebrating the angelic voice that powers this show, Mr. Dwight Hassler. Uh, We recorded this episode on his literal birthday and turned the whole show over to him. So he hosts, he picked the guests, he picked the songs. Uh, It was a really special great evening with wonderful stories, and today you're going to hear from Chris Crotwell, John Lester, Chris Geiger, Mike Gifford, and Ben Rathert, plus music from Dwight, me, Jim Snedeker, and Claire Friedman. Man, this episode is stacked. Uh, But before we get to that, we have plugs. Uh, First off, this Friday we've got a very special Your Story show where we're teaming up with Breather, which is basically an Airbnb for office spaces, and Common Threads, a charitable organization that fights childhood obesity through education. Uh, There's a $10 donation to attend the show, and that money all goes to Common Threads. Uh, Space for the show is super limited, so if you want to go, hit up nerdalogs.com or our Facebook page and grab your tickets ASAP. Uh, Another thing you should get tickets for, this Saturday is your final chance to see Attend the Tale of Danny Tanner, a Full House musical co-written and co-scored by our very own Katie Johnston-Smith, starring Katie and Mary Beth Smith, with live music throughout from myself. Uh, And there's um, many, many talented people in the cast and crew besides people that you know. Of course, this is a really fun, great show, and we played the sold-out crowds the last two weeks, so there is no reason to think this last showing will be any different. So I would get your tickets soon, and don't miss it. Uh, I mean, who doesn't want to see Full House, but with more murder? I know I did. That's why I did the show. Uh, So before we get to this episode, I want to thank our sponsors for the week, which is Field Notes, of course, via the Chicago Podcast Co-op. I also want to thank everybody who backs our Patreon page. This helps us a ton in keeping up the stuff we do and hopefully doing more of it. Uh, My latest specific shout-out goes to Catherine D'Amato. Thank you so much for your generosity, Catherine. You are wonderful. 
If you want to be more like Catherine, visit patreon.com. Uh, there's some uh, slash nerdalog. There are, I have to admit, some pretty cool rewards in store for you if you want to support us. And of course, you're listening to this podcast supports us already, so thank you so much for that. Now that is all the plugs I have for today, so please enjoy Dwight's birthday. Uh, just in case you don't know, so uh, this show sprung out of a sketch comedy group called The Nerdalogs that uses uh, true stories from kind of our lives growing up in our sketch shows, and we thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if other people could tell their story? So that's how your story started five years ago, which is pretty amazing. This is our fifth year as a show, as a podcast. Uh, so I've been doing this for almost the whole five years, and up here with me most of this whole time has been uh, Mr. Dwight Hassler. And so, as it happens... As it happens, today is Dwight's literal birthday. And, and so I thought it would be nice to turn the entire show over to Dwight. So everything you're about to see, the music, the speakers, whatever, all picked by my co-host. She's going to take over this whole night. I'm going to shut up real quick so we can bring... All right, let's chill out. It's not that exciting. So we can bring to the stage Mr. Dwight Hassler! I'm moving so slow, I'm, I'm full of tots. Oh. Just like, how, how many, what's in a, how much come in that side of tots? The waitress is like, a lot. I'll take two. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm real happy that everyone's here. I feel weird that I'm the one doing this. I actually hadn't planned on that. Uh, but uh, I, I, we're going to have a lot of fun, you know, like. Uh, brought in some, some oldies but some goodies who haven't been around in a while and I'm ha- happy that they're going to be here and tell some stories too uh, so the theme of the night is your story because uh, like last year they had it was all they did stuff about me and I fucked that let's hear I want to hear about you guys so <laughs> uh, so let's welcome to the stage the rest of my group uh, Jim Snedeker Claire Friedman and Eric Garneau <laughs> We, uh, so yeah, the songs, I, I picked songs for each individual to sing uh, lead on, because I feel like, I don't know, I could just, like, I listen to a song, this is, I think it would be perfect for him. Uh, Becca uh, Brown has joined us, but uh, she unfortunately got strep throat this morning, so she couldn't be here, uh, but the song I, <laughs> the song I chose for her uh, was Pat Benatar's. Hit me with your best shot. Which, fortunately, Dwight already knows how to sing. Yeah, so, gonna, <laughs> so, yeah, so I got to sing it. Guess what? We didn't learn this for no reason. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Shine. Why don't you hit me with the best? 
Happy birthday, Dwight. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Uh, this next song I picked for Claire. Uh, Claire, come back. Claire. Uh, she doesn't want to do it anymore. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> Claire's got this good, like, she can get this real, like, <laughs> in her voice. <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean? like, like Colossus in the X-Men arcade. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, uh, I picked this for it's a little low, so we have to change the key a little bit, but that's it, still sounds amazing. Um, yeah. Um, I will just say, when I started playing with cover stories uh, a few years ago, I had I have a lot of um, stage fright uh, doing musics, doing the musics. <laughs> Uh, so my technique to beat that was to just do an impression of Dwight. <laughs> so it felt like acting instead of singing. That's worked out well for me. <laughs> Works that, pretty well. That's so weird because I'm totally the opposite. Like I can play music all day long, but if I have to like do anything without this net of this guitar, I, like I can't do it. I no, mean, I can, but I don't. I can't like do it. things seriously. <laughs> that's not a nightmare. Which is why we're here, really. That's the whole point of the show. <laughs> anyway.
next speaker. One of the when he first the first few stories he told, he just walking around, pacing back and forth on stage, just <laughs> fucking nailing it. No, no notes, no nothing. Just telling, getting up there and telling such a great story. Um, my friend uh, Chris Crotwell. had all that swaggers behind me. <laughs> it's funny, actually. Uh, so this story is a follow-up to the very first story I ever told here in 2012. Um, and for listeners, the podcast audience, uh, if you'd like to listen to that, these guys set up an awesome website. And after you listen to that, listen to the rest of my stories, because they're fucking great. <laughs> you should. Um, uh, but, but a short recap... So the first story I ever told uh, was about finding out that I had family, uh, and they were the largest family of chondroplastic dwarves in the world, right? Uh, my uncle got married, uh, his wife absconded with their child who had uh, chondroplasia. After that, he looked for her for 30 years. She finally came back into her life. I found out I had this family. The only thought I can think is I can finally be a two-scale Chewbacca with the whole rest of the cast of Star Wars at Dragon Con. <laughs> and this is a story about how I feel like that got much more realistic lately. Um, what happened, uh, which often happens with family, is that things just got more complicated. Uh... TLC approached my cousin, Amber, and her family to be one of the shows on their Bizarre Freak Show of a Network. Um, but, but reality TV show, uh, reality TV is, is terrible. Uh, because if you watched anything, just any person's life unedited, it'd be so goddamned boring. Like, most of life is just, like, ceaseless tedium. We don't think about it all the time, but you have to admit it's true. Like, even Elon Musk, and yes, that's the example I would use, one of the most fascinating people in the world, if you watched him Truman Show style, you'd fucking kill yourself. It'd be awful. We're just fancy mammals. Most of what we do is shit, sleep, and eat. Um, so the only interesting thing about this family I have is that they're little people, right? Otherwise, they're just some family. And nobody just wants to watch some family on television, so there has to be some sort of narrative arc, right? That's the process of creating reality TV. You edit someone's life in a way as to make it seem like it means anything at all. Um, and that's what we do in our own heads a lot, too, but, but it has to sell to the, the TLC viewership, which are not necessarily our best and brightest. And I apologize if you really love TLC, but it hasn't been the learning channel for a long time. Um, so they, they approached my, they approached my, my cousin Amber uh, to do this show. Uh, she agrees. Um, but she'd recently, you know, reunited with her birth father, my Uncle John. Uh, and nobody asked him if he wanted to be on a fucking reality TV show. And they decided the most dramatic narrative arc they could have for the season was questioning whether or not he'd been looking for her or whether he actually wanted to be a part of her family, which was a thing she already knew. Yes, she'd met the man. She'd spent a lot of time with him. 
you know? My mom had told her. He looked for you for years. Could not find you. He was heartbroken. But they need a story to tell, right? And a story about some family, even if they have a hard time reaching high places, <laughs> isn't, like, that's just not going to grab people. So they have to tell this story. And over the course of the season... Uh, they keep having these weird little moments of, like, questioning indictment about my uncle. And the way they cut the trailers makes him seem like a real villain. And the world is not terribly nice these days, especially when you can reach out and talk to anyone. Uh, the internet has made damn sure that. And the, like I said, the TLC viewing audience are not, like, they're, it's, these are not necessarily the kindest, most complex people and so he started getting letters in the mail and people just like lambasting him on social media. Someone found his phone number. They're like calling him and it's, it's one of these bizarre backlashes. Uh, they're like, how, how dare you? How could you not want to be a part of this amazing woman's life? You know, all three and a half feet of her. She's incredible. <laughs> I have, I, look, I still haven't met these people. <laughs> Family means something different to me than some people. I, and, and after what happened, I, did, I don't necessarily know that I need to. Um, but I probably will, and here's why. They, they have to keep manufacturing events to happen in these people's lives so that there is this sense of narrative. Like, they have to go to the beach. She has to have deep, longing questions about whether my uncle wants to be with her. And they have to go to my parents' house to have a barbecue. And when I found out that my parents were going to be on TLC, I had really mixed feelings. <laughs> the first thing I thought was, fuck, Dad's going to say something so racist! <laughs> but he, he knows how the world works. He's savvy. He unmiked himself to say the racist thing. <laughs> The PA for the show kept having to find my tipsy dad and go behind him and plug his mic back in. <laughs> but I, I was worried about how this would look. Uh, and I was worried about how my dad would end up looking on television. And I, I, I cannot watch this show. Like, one, I just don't give a shit. And two, they try to make it, like, sexy. Like, they, yeah, right? I can't watch it. It's really weird. They, they, it's all about them, like, maintaining the spark in their marriage with... Like, all these children, which happens to everyone. And the only reason it's interesting again is because they're petite. <laughs> and I just, like, I don't think this is my cousin I haven't met. And I'm sure she fucks her husband. I hope she does. Like, most people in happy relationships do. It just doesn't be, have to be a part of my TV life. <laughs> you know? I, I can't watch it. But I have to watch. I have to watch. Like, in my parents' home... This bizarre premise of them hanging out with, like, seven dwarves in a place where I go for Christmas. And so my dad, finally, he shows up. It takes them two days to film the thing. They have to do almost all of it twice. So the moments are completely manufactured, right? Because they're, they're like, coaching mom. Like, could you ask that question again? Like, could you say that again? Uh, they're not actors. My, my dad is spontaneous at worst. And I'm not sure what at best. I love the man, but... So, he, he, he's good at entertaining the kids because he's really goofy. I, I got that 
from him along with some other things like the alcoholism <laughs> and uh, he does a magic show for a living room full of dwarves and it's on television and I didn't tell anyone this was happening but I have friends at home who are like just trying to find like a like this I hope back to the future is on TV flip 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 and they're flipping through the channels and they just my dad with no context <laughs> it's like my dad who they know appears on screen in a room full of dwarves that they've never met like they don't know this is family I don't talk about this with a lot of people and, and he's just doing magic he's just making fucking scarves appear out of nowhere and that's the only time he's in the entire episode <laughs> they just they just show him in the background and then they have mom sit down on the couch and have like this tearful honest conversation with Amber about like the fact that you know mom's trying to be the uh, the person that fixes everything that's what she does for both halves of our family mom is the person who everyone calls about everything and the whole time this is happening John is calling mom super upset because he's a villain on TV now and Amber is calling mom confused for some reason about why her dad's upset and he has to cancel a trip he's going on with them because, like, he's like, yeah, I'd love to go to the beach with you guys. That sounds so lovely. Uh, but no, I don't want to go to the beach with you if it's going to be on television the whole time. Like, that's just not the man I am. I don't want to do that. So they have this scene where Mom is sitting on the couch with Amber uh, just telling her, like, your uncle, he, he loves you. He always looked for you. And it's supposed to be this really emotional moment in the show but it's just fucking not if you know any of the people involved because these are all things Amber goddamn knows. <laughs> like, Mom has told her this stuff a million times, but they have to manufacture it into this bizarre industrial product to feed people's need to see, like, enormous or tiny or, you know, like, people who, like, fuck carousels on TV. <laughs> you know? And that's a fucking episode of a show. It is. It was, you know, uh, they have to turn someone's life into this bizarre manufactured thing. But I think it's really increased my chances of actually getting to go to Dragon Con with them as Star Wars characters and me as Chewbacca. And that's because it's going to get fucking boring. Because people's lives, people's lives are boring and they have to keep coming up with things to do. And Lord knows Star Wars is as hot as it has been in 40 fucking years. <laughs> So I'm going to make a call to my cousin Amber and be like, I know we haven't met, but look, if you want that fat, fat TLC money to keep rolling in, you're dressing up like Princess Leia and you're not complaining about it. And you're going to find child-sized costumes for your menagerie of little people and we are going to walk that con floor and I'm going to feel a hundred times bigger than reality and none of it's going to be real at fucking all because none of it is thanks guys yeah I suppose it's it's weird like do you keep your integrity or do you get the ratings and obviously TLC went downhill uh, uh, next to the stage uh, he told me that he's going to have a Mexican bodyguard soon so he's just getting up into that tax bracket uh, John Lester 
that's that's not for my normal life. Like Michigan's not that dangerous, you guys. I promise. Like I'm actually going to Mexico, so that's what that's for. Um, so that's another story for another time. Um, so when when Dwight asked me to speak, you know, I was I of course said yes. You know, I love being a part of your stories when I'm asked, and you know, being a part of uh, this great family of people that are here. Uh, but then he told me the topic was your story, and I was terrified because that is a extremely nerve-inducing, like, wide prompt. So I had no idea what to talk about. So um, to kind of find a device and to find a, a way to narrow this down into something, uh, I stole a device from my friend Mark Wold, which is his Rules for Life. So I started thinking of all the things I've learned in my life and broken them down into rules. And what I discovered was most of those rules start with, don't fuck around with blank. So <laughs> don't fuck around with tornadoes. <laughs> Don't fuck around with hopes about the Cubs. <laughs> Ignore my outfit right now. I promise I'm, I'm not breaking that rule. Um, but So I, I cheated a little bit. I know Dwight didn't want the stories to be about him, but this is tangentially related to you. Um, so flipping through my rule book past uh, Don't Fuck Around with Monkeys, uh, we go to Don't Fuck Around with Mountains. And why this is Dwight-inspired is this story takes place in Korea. So... <laughs> <laughs> So uh, about four years ago, I was fortunate enough to spend about a week in uh, Seoul, and it was a great trip. Uh, and early on in this trip, I noticed that a lot of the, um, especially the older people, were wearing uh, hiking clothes, and they had hiking, you know, paraphernalia, for lack of a better word. So, you know, poles and backpacks. And part of me thought, huh, maybe Sherpa Sheik is in in Korea. <laughs> but a more rational part about me thought, you know, there must be great places to go hiking around here. Uh, which turned out to be the truth. Uh, so I never really hiked before. Uh, so I looked into it, and I'm like, oh, there's these you know, mountains, and they're right outside of Seoul. It'd be like taking Metro to Schaumburg. It's that kind of distance. But instead of Ikea, it's a mountain. So, you know, it's, it seemed like, you know, it's really reasonable. It's very urban, like climbing. You know, it's very exciting. So I looked up the one that was like three out of five difficulty. Because I'm like, let's not challenge myself too much. Um, so I, I'm in my hotel room, and I did not pack for this. You know, I didn't think about this beforehand. So, you know, in my very smart preparedness for hiking, I, uh, I wore shoes that did not have any traction. Uh, I wore cargo shorts. Because uh, I could put things in them. Nothing useful. Uh, and I wore a t-shirt and a collared shirt over the top of that because you need to be fancy on a mountain. So I hopped on the train, and I'm all excited. I'm going to climb a mountain, and it's close to the city. I'm I'm gonna get some great pictures, I'm gonna take some selfies, I'm gonna annoy everyone on Facebook, it'll be awesome. Uh, and so I get off the train and I very smartly buy a bottle of water. Not a large bottle of water, no, no, a small bottle of water, you know, so, uh, no backpack to put it in, you know, so I carried it. Uh, so I, I walk up to the, the base of the mountain and I'm like, okay, so there's this paved trail and it goes to the top and that's what I'm picturing. And I get a map and it's got Korean and it's got English on it. I'm like, awesome, like I got this. So I start going up. And I go up, and I'm looking at the guide signs, and they're all in Korean. There's no English on those. So I'm like, okay, that squiggly line matches this squiggly line. Okay, okay, yeah, I know where I'm going. I got this. Overconfidence, very good idea. Um, so I, I keep going up, and the paved trail ends. I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, it's, it's still a dirt path. It's packed, and I see people walking up and down. I'm like, they're mostly in their 60s, and I'm like, I can do that. I'm like, this is awesome. This is so, this is so cool. I keep going up, and the, the dirt, the nice curved dirt path ends, and it starts to be trees that have been felled and that you climb over to continue going up, and the path becomes less obvious, and there are leaves covering it. But I still see signs, so I'm on a path of some sort. 
and I'm, I know I'm nearing the top, so I, I, I know it's got to be close. I can, I can kind of see where I'm going. And, uh, but I can't see where the trail goes at this point. Like, there's nothing around. There's no trail. Fortunately for me, uh, three older women come around the corner in their hiking gear and their poles and their Sherpa chic. And I'm like, perfect. They must have just come from the top. I can ask them where to go. And so, of course, they don't speak English. And I'm like, that's okay. You know, I got a map and it's got Korean on it and I can point. So I point at the top and I'm like, you know, which way do I go? No, no, no comprehension of what I'm asking. Just blank stares. And so I'm like, oh, this is not good. So I'm like, you know, here and, you know, I keep pointing. And then finally one of them just kind of just goes, like, look of recognition. And she points me to her right. And I go, I, you know, I go, thank you. I say, come to me da. And I'm like, you know, I know one word uh, in Korean. Uh, and I follow her direction. And I walk for about 100 yards and the trail stops. And when I say stops, I don't mean, like, there's no more visible thing to go on. I mean, it actually drops. Like, there's, like, a, a small cliff. But down the cliff, I see, like, some makeshift stairs and a rope. And I'm like, oh, this must be, like, the hard course to the top. I'm like, you got to go down to go up. That makes sense. Uh, so I start taking the steps down, and I or take the rope down, and the rope ends, and then there's absolutely nowhere to go. And I think, well, I already came this way, and they pointed me this way. I'm like, I must have to keep going down. I'm like, I'll find the trail there. So I take about three steps, and I lose my footing. And I roll, and I roll, and I roll down the side of this mountain. Like, um, I'm trying to think of uh, Princess Bride. That's what it is. Yeah, so it's like the Princess Bride, you know, as you wish. as like I'm flying down this mountain. And I recover, and I grab onto some vegetation, and I'm, like, standing up. And I, I look down, and, you know, my cargo shorts did not hold up in the fall. I got blood down my legs. I, I've got, you know, I got scrapes all on my arms and stuff like that. And I look up, and there's no possible way to get back to where I was. And I look down, and there's no trail. And I go, oh, fuck, I'm going to die. <laughs> and the worst part was, you know how I said it's like going to Schaumburg? So, you know, up on this mountain, I'm overlooking Seoul. I see a giant modern city within view... <laughs> And I'm going to die, like, uh, like it's 168 hours. Like, it's, it's, it was the worst feeling. I'm like, I am going to be that story. Like, I'm going to be that story on CNN. Dumb white foreigner dies in Korea. Like, that is all that's flashing through my mind. So for, like, 10 minutes there, like, real panic starts to set in. I, like, I've never felt like that. Like, heart racing, like, hard to think. And I'm like, okay, i got to slow it down. i got to think. And I look, and there's a river. And I'm like, okay. Water leads to somewhere. I'm like, water always leads to somewhere. That's what the movies taught me. I'm like, this has got to work. So I follow this river, and I'm falling along, and I'm slipping on the wet rocks and, like, trying to navigate and cut myself up more. And finally, I get back down to a place where on the path where I'd been before. And part of me goes, well, you got to go back up there. you got to get to the top. you got to get those pictures. But then a smarter part of me said, no, t take your losses and go back. So I climb back down the way I went. You know, I pass a couple people, and they see this freaking American. It's bloody, like, all ripped apart, like, mud on my face. Um, and remember, I took the train out there. So I have to take the commuter train back into the city. So all these people in their business suits at 4.30 on a Wednesday, they're all, you know, commuting home from work. And all it gets me in a ripped shirt and tattered clothes and blood all over me. Couldn't wash myself off. Nowhere to do it. So, um... So that's how I developed the rule of don't fuck with mountains. But if you do, uh, dress appropriately, <laughs> take lots of water, find the path, and if all else fails, at least know some Korean. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, John. 
Yeah, I was, uh, was very lucky. I, uh, when I was getting together all the speakers, I just like, I love the way John tells the story. So I messaged him like, you wouldn't happen to be in the city on May 15th? It's like, yeah, I'm going to be there for a Cubs game. Like, fucking yeah. <laughs> so lucky. Um, and in that same vein, I thought, I want to bring back some people who haven't told, been here for a while, haven't told stories in a long time. And uh, one of those people uh, I messaged was uh, Chris Geiger, and uh, I asked him, would you please come do, come back and tell a story? I, um, you get up here and you nail it, too. Like, you, you, this, the, the story you told about... Uh, you, um, Graduating from the college of fuck you, just like I'm, just like that hit that struck a chord with me. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Geiger. Oh boy. Well, no pressure to that. <laughs> Actually, I don't have a story. So, thanks, guys. I. <laughs> uh, Okay, so it's been a long time since I've done one of these, but I'm happy to shake off the rust for a story since Dwight demanded it. I live to serve Dwight's wishes. It is my one true lot in life, and I'm happy to oblige. Uh, now, as the, uh, the theme he said is your story, and that's supposed to talk about me, uh, to which I say, tough titty, I will talk about you. LAUGHTER uh, so last summer, uh, the Nerdalogs attended PAX Prime to do a few shows and sell some copies of Fisticuffs, and Dwight got to go uh, with us as part of the crew. And in this trip, I had one of the most mystifying moments of human interaction. <laughs> a moment that still keeps me up at night from time to time. To tell it simply, Dwight doesn't like vegetables. <laughs> Now, this is probably known to most of you, but to our podcast listeners, that may not be the case. Now, I want to clarify, when I say Dwight doesn't like vegetables, I don't mean he doesn't just like broccoli or the unfun vegetables that you get with dinner and eat in order to have a well-rounded meal. No, I mean all vegetables in almost all forms. And this information didn't really dawn on me until well into our trip to PAX. See, we had picked up some food for everyone. And as a pal does, I picked up a burrito for Dwight at Cadoba, or, or was it Moe's? The story's falling apart already. <laughs> and while there, I opted for a basic burrito for Dwight because I didn't want to presume, you know. And so I, 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 I believe I got like a steak and rice, you know, beans, cheese, and salsa. Pretty standard burrito order, nothing fancy. Now, upon delivering it to Dwight, he took a bite and immediately recoiled. <laughs> now, to be perfectly fair to my friend, he was not ungrateful for the meal, and was very nice about the whole thing. And when he recoiled, I immediately thought, oh, I shouldn't have gotten cheese on it. Because that's the thing people get upset about. And when I asked if it was okay, he responded, word for word, yuck. I hate vegetables. Like a, like a five-year-old boy. But I didn't get vegetables on it, I protested. And, rejoined, and, and then he rejoined with, there's salsa on it. My mind boggled. <laughs> salsa? Salsa. The most basic of Mexican condiments. Salsa. His explanations were quick 
and revelatory. He didn't like the texture nor taste of any vegetable. Even when diced, as fine as those veggies in his salsa. And thus I grilled him as one would a nice tinfoil of onions and peppers with a little olive oil and seasoning on, on which vegetables he could eat. To which he responded, none of them. And then later amended, some potatoes. <laughs> to this day, I cannot truck with that fact. It keeps me up at night. I think Dwight may be one of the few decided pure carnivores in existence. And only when I think... <laughs> And only when I think of him as an inverse vegetarian or vegan does my mind finally settle down to a place where I can doze off peacefully. <laughs> now, however, uh, in theme of, this, of the night, so I've gone through a lot of life changes recently, which I won't get into because why torture you with the same maudlin energy of a teenager's journal? But with any life change comes a massive amount of self-reflection, sometimes guided, sometimes, you know, not. And it's hard to talk about anything other than that while you're performing emotional triage, and for that I apologize. See, the thing about life changes is that they make you question everything. What decisions have I made to get me here, and what decisions do I need to make going forward? What does this mean? What does that mean? And so on. And there are very few constants. I like barbecue, for example, and always will. So there's one thing I don't need to question. Well, I'll always love Spider-Man and Star Wars. Bama football and Cubs baseball, sunny days and clear beaches. Those are things that I am confident in. Those are constants. And for Dwight, he has at least one constant. <laughs> I hate vegetables. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie, while I've been building my legs back up from under me, on more than a few occasions I have thought back to that interaction with a sense of respect that I likely did not offer to him at the time. <laughs> He had figured his constant out, and that confidence has helped me decide that there are constants that are true to me no matter what that are worth holding on to, no matter what someone may think. There are so many things that make you uniquely you, and for Dwight, his uniqueness goes well beyond his stance on our leafy foodstuffs, and what makes him the wonderful person he is will never be determined by the greens he chooses to pass over. But when it comes down to this, comes down to it, his sincerity about his taste is enviable. And I hope one day I'm able to look at my own constants without the same lingering questions and just accept them for what they are. So happy birthday, Dwight. I hope no one got you carrot cake. <laughs> Just like, what could he p be possibly talking about at PAX? I, I was very normal at PAX. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, you and Jando just, like, could not understand, like, no vegetables? No. This? No. This? No. This? No. Not even this? No. They were just, like, they just kept, like, going on with vegetable after vegetable. I just couldn't understand. Um, <laughs> I, I guess... A little insight to why I'm so unhealthy. Um, uh, our next speaker, uh, he, we were at uh, a show for the at the Harold Washington Library, and he was there speaking. And he, uh, 
And I'm like, I'm excited for you to be here uh, for, my, for my birthday show. And he's just like, it's going to be vulgar. I'm going to make it the dirtiest thing I can think of. What do you want it to be about? I'm like, why are you asking me? I want you to tell me what, it's your story. Tell me, you tell me. But he made me give him a topic and uh, hopefully it's going to be vulgar and, and disgusting. Mike Gifford, ladies and gentlemen. Now, uh, he didn't want to hug you, but that's all right. But, no. Mike, stop. So what? So I said I want to write something really vulgar and disgusting. But what did you ask me to talk about? I well, I, what? I told him what the, what one was of the first it? stories that you told was these are the shoes of a gay man who has given up. Yeah, right. They are. I look uh, awful. <laughs> I look so and, uh, awful. I, just, I can't even get AIDS <laughs> in my truck. <laughs> So I, I just asked him, like, what about, like, when you first knew when you were gay and right. when you knew that you had given up? It's vulgar, all right. All right. Well, I am a gay man, so I'm, like, half a person. But, um, but I guess, you know, uh, to quote uh, the author Reynolds Price, he said, uh, please don't call me gay. If you must use an adjective, just call me morose. <laughs> I, I don't. So, I, so I will. So I'll do something uh, uh, certainly more uh, personal than I normally would. Otherwise, being vulgar. So when did I know I was gay? Well, one dark and stormy night, I had a massive wet dream. <laughs> At the time, all I had were tidy whities, and it was appalling. <laughs> so it, it was like the first time you eat spaghetti, you know? That was awful. So in any case, now I was young and I thought masturbation was a problem. Uh, so I didn't do that. So I would just uh, lean back with my hand over my eyes and I would fantasize about things until my dick would get hard. And then whenever it start to like cough, <coughs> you know, I'd cup my hand down my pants and run into the bathroom, at which point I'd jerk off pee sort of into the bathroom, but manu would not manually, it would do it on its own. It just kind of thit, 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 thit. <laughs> so anyway. So, so at a at a church bazaar, my father's a Methodist minister, we were cleaning up and I found in this wooden box this really dirty lingerie ad. Now, I know I'm the oldest one here. I don't look it, but I am. And uh, what an awful position to be in. Jesus Christ, I never thought. It's like whenever people ask, you know, like, oh my God, I was in the third grade whenever 9-11 happened, because 9-11 is like some reference point in some weird macabre way of our lives now. And I thinking that I was going to start college and I was drunk that day because I thought I was going to die overseas but I digress but I, but I wasn't gay then so I could have gotten out of it I just didn't realize that I like cock more than war but in any case 
but if you've ever had anal sex for the first time, it's surprisingly like war. But, but so I have my arm, oh, so I was at a church bazaar and I found this dirty magazine circa 1980s. So a lot of leather, a lot of big frills, a lot of women with permanence. Anyway, um, but they had like the bras and stuff where the tits would hang out and they would have like holes in the uh, uh, vaginal region. And so in any case, but so I shoved this magazine down my, the front of my pants. I'd never seen anything erotic before. I didn't even know quite what it was. I was 12 years old. But I got home and I pulled it out. And I didn't even look at it. I had these drawers on the side of my bed and I pulled the drawer out all the way that contained my comic book cards and I stuck the magazine underneath it and I sealed it and every now and again I would pull it out and look at this magazine and I wondered what it was all about. Clearly it wasn't doing much for me because I am very gay. But... But I, I would look at it, and I thought, but it made me so guilty. It was like a telltale heart underneath my bed. And so I finally, I, there, for whatever reason, I thought this one blonde girl was especially pretty. It, it wasn't getting me off, but it was just kind of, I don't know, I had sort of an affectionate affinity. Like, you know, whenever you go back and watch the same porn actors over and over again, because you sort of feel like you've built this weird relationship with people you don't know? You know what I'm talking about. So, please, turn to your left turned your right gross so in any case um but um so I, but I ripped out that page and I threw the rest of it away. I actually stuck it under water and threw it away. But I had this one page. But even that was too much. So then I just ripped off the one little corner of the person. And, and but eventually I had thrown every bit of it away. And I was all the while just daydreaming. And I would think to myself, there was a one fellow. Uh, I'll just call him Ryan for the sake of it. And uh, and so I would think of Ryan. And I thought, well, if I only think of Ryan for a few seconds, it'll be okay to do that instead of thinking of a girl. But it, I felt like it was odd because I didn't know what gay was because people don't even talk about those things at that point in time. It's hard to imagine the idea, but that was something that was so distant. I mean, it wasn't okay to be gay at all anywhere zero zip you know i mean it's and it's inconceivable how much things have changed over time and that was scary i remember the uh, uh, second time I had ever seen my father cry was because his best friend from high school, Lynn, died of AIDS, and it was devastating. My father, I didn't, we didn't really discuss it, or and I certainly didn't understand it, but it was a very overwhelming, sort of ominous thing that we just did not talk about. Uh, you, you move forward, and that was simply it. And I remember having the birds and the bees talk with my father, who is a wonderful man, and I asked him, I said, well, how did you know Lynn was gay? And this little boy, and my dad's like, well, I, I don't know, you can't, you can't really tell, and in my mind, I'm like, you know, I wanted to just say, you know, are they floppy and stuff, you know, like the gelatin of people, but... <laughs> 
but dad didn't have a, a really good explanation to it. It, it unnerved him. Uh, he didn't know. He was very torn in this way because societal constraints would tell him that this is something that is completely unacceptable and, in fact, in many states, still illegal uh, up until 2003. But... Um, it was, it was a challenging thing because then his best friend also, um, who he loved, had died and was gay and so many people were dying and that's also something I think we forget about so quickly but I remember this quite well. And so I really shoved it down and uh, uh, repressed it and I didn't know what was going on and there wasn't a word. All I knew was I was different and I couldn't be like other people. And that was so strange. Uh, but then, as time went by, it just became overwhelming. You can't keep something like that uh, buried down for so long, and it sort of starts to spread and get toxic, and it really just eats at you in a really vicious way. And I'll never forget going downstairs to the basement of the house that we lived in at the time, and I lifted myself up on the rafters to see if it could hold my weight in case I decided to kill myself. And so when I was in uh, the 11th grade, uh, it was the first week of class, I spoke to my teacher, Mrs. Marilyn Sands, and I broke down in tears because, and I confessed to her that I was planning on killing myself because I didn't know what was wrong with me, because something was sick, and I didn't know what was up. And she told me I wasn't sick, and there was nothing wrong with me. I was just gay. I thought, oh, well, I guess that's not as bad as I thought. <laughs> then again, if I realized I had to wear those sort of weird underpants, killing myself may have been a viable option. But anyway, <laughs> so that's it. It's a weird journey, and it continues to still be one. It's not like... And I think this is one thing, and I can't speak for maybe people that are a little bit younger because you, you, it really did change. I have older gay friends whom uh, uh, almost hold on to this nostalgic feeling of it was somehow better whenever we could just be in the shadows and do things our way because we weren't an accessory for other people and we weren't somehow uh, this thing because we were just people, we just did our thing. We weren't gay people. We were just people who did stuff. But now, as it's become more accepted, we're gay people. And that's kind of a weird asterisk position to be in. And now we become a political thing, whereas before, uh, it just wasn't talked about. And, and so I feel like I'm in this middle weird thing where I understand and have uh, these older gay friends who uh, have a very different kind of opinion of it and remember AIDS all very well. And then I have uh, younger gay friends who are uh, 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 sort of moving into this almost uh, uh, not using condoms and back into PrEP and PEP. And this has great conflict with people uh, uh, because uh, there's a whole uh, divergence. And so understanding who I am as a gay person is still an ongoing thing, but... Coming to that conclusion that it was okay to be gay has sort of been and continues to be uh, a very defining point of my life. I hope I have expressed myself adequately to you, and happy birthday, my friend. Yeah.
Thanks, Mike. Thank you. I, that, I mean, I, it's what I wanted. It's just this personal story, so it's awesome. Um, uh, uh, I said I was lucky with uh, John getting being here in town, and um, my luck uh, just keeps rolling uh, because uh, one of my uh, best friends who I play magic with, um, uh, we are locked in a uh, battle of goblins versus elves. Um, he is here tonight, too, and uh, everybody, welcome to the stage, back to the stage, Ben Rather. Good evening, everybody. Oh, my gosh. I, I have been looking forward to this for months. Uh, I had this one planned out from, I think, back in November is when I contacted Eric. said, I, I need to be back on the show. How about May? Because when you have two kids, you need to map your life out that far in advance. Uh, and then this all kind of fell together. It's like, actually, we're celebrating Dwight's birthday. I'm like, well, then great, because this works out perfectly. Um, that said, Dwight, it was my honor to beat the shit out of you at Magic earlier. Uh, uh, All right, all right. But my brag tonight is actually that Dwight sang at my wedding. I've known him for a number of years, but when Nikki and I were trying to settle on who was going to sing for us uh, for our song, I Will Follow You Into the Dark, we thought of Dwight and it immediately snapped, and he did awesome. Dwight, you didn't sing at my birth, but I do look forward to you singing at my funeral. coming up here. Speaking of, by the way, this is a big shout out to Nikki, who's got the kids in the hotel room tonight. Thank you very much, babe. I love you. Yeah. Anyway, Dwight, this story is not about you, uh, but I do appreciate the times that we spend together. As a little boy, I loved trains. Who didn't? I especially loved building the tracks and deciding where the course would be. Around the coffee table, under the piano. At some point, the fascination to build was completely replaced with Legos and Kinects. Uh, but before that, I remember one Chris Christmas where I received two electric train sets. One was the classic design, you know, with the big engine and the coal car and the box car, and it was beautiful. And I, I could see that even as a little boy. But the other train I got was a five-car silver Amtrak car train. It had the emblems of the Amtrak right on the side in great detail. You could see them. Now, it had a propensity to jump off its own track, and the track wasn't very long, but it was my favorite because my daddy drove trains like that. Dad started driving for Amtrak in 1987 after working for about 17 years or so for Illinois Central running freight trains. He chose the switch because it meant he would finally have a fixed schedule so my mom, my sister Carrie, and I would know what days he would be home. But he was still gone a lot, three full days out of every week. He mostly left and came home in the middle of the night while Carrie and I were asleep. Mom almost always got up to see him off or return home again, and I'd often hear them talking in the dining room below where I slept on the landing just at the top of the stairs. It wasn't really a room, and you had to walk through it to get to the other rooms, but I digress. In the wintertime, when my dad would open the heavy front door to go out, a blast of cold air would make it all the way up the steps to my bed on the landing, and I'd feel that. Then he'd be gone. He'd be off to places like Chicago, Memphis, or Greenwood, Mississippi, places very different from Ava, Illinois. Dad being gone a lot was both good and bad for me growing up. He was gone about every other day. We did not always get along that well. I remember recognizing at maybe the age of seven that Dad didn't know really anything about the X-Men or about the X-Files or uh, Nintendo or any of the things I was actually into as a kid. Uh, strangely, though, I do remember the first episode of Star Trek I ever watched, Genesis, where they all de-evolve. I watched that with Dad. I don't know why that happened, but anyway... Uh, every Saturday, every single Saturday, Dad and I would spend together. Working around town or on the farm or overhead his parents, this was my life. My friends would talk about what they did on Saturday. I was on the farm. It's just what we did. 
I hated it. I'm a kid. I don't want to work in my time off. We know that. Um, but it's what we do, did. We didn't get along that well in the respect that my dad wasn't the best at explaining things and I wasn't necessarily the best at following those instructions anyway. Something like, bring those boards over here would end up with a very nicely stacked pile of boards far away from where we need them. <laughs> For example, maybe I'd change the oil in the car before I real and put the new stuff back in before I realized that I didn't change the filter. So things like that kind of made it worse. Whatever, I, I did well in school, and that made me think, too, that I was actually smarter than him, than a grown man. My dad, who's a smart guy anyway, I've never beaten him at chess. Not once. <laughs> Teenage men had other thoughts, though. Dad had to be stupid. <sighs> Regrets of, of a grown person. Anyway, I love my dad. I really do. We had so many good times together. My feelings with him are, are about as complicated as your feelings towards your dad. Anyway, about the age of 10... When my school schedule would permit, I would get to go with Dad on his Thursday afternoon runs to Chicago. I loved having my own seat and hanging out with the conductors and getting to go to the snack car. I remember the sheer power of the engine close up and how scary it is to feel it in your chest. I loved those trips because it gave me hours upon hours to read and write and draw all the things I loved to do most. Dad would come back to check on me at the longer stops like Champaign-Urbana or if we got sidetracked somewhere. Everyone called me Stick's son because that was his work nickname, Stick. Chicago was a completely different world for me. With the cold on my cheeks, I would just stare up at the skyscrapers. Walking through the city with Dad, hearing the music on the street corners, restaurants selling foods I had never heard of, and the homeless huddle between buildings and over steam vents, I would always feel like I was in a movie. And Dad somehow fit right in. It's one of his special talents that he's never out of place. He'll fit right in wherever he lands. I can't recall the number of times people that I had never met before would talk to me and say, You know, your dad's a great guy. I didn't know how to take that, but it did make me kind of feel proud to be a son. When high school was drawing to a close, I knew that I had to leave home for college. I was offered a full ride at nearby SIU, but made the difficult decision to not go because honestly, if I stayed, my relationship with my mom and dad would have suffered. By that time, I felt it was my place to help dad on the weekends. I'd grown used to it. It was my role. Yet, I always knew that when college came, I was going to jump in both feet, and somehow I couldn't do both at the same time. When I got accepted by U of I, I jumped right in, and I didn't know much about it other than it was a good school, supposedly. I didn't even know what I wanted to do with myself. I just had to go. I had so many fears and doubts, which I did my best to silence in the months to come as I made my decisions about the, the year ahead, but somehow the fact that Dad's train would be coming right through town made all of this more bearable. Sometimes I would go out to the platform on Friday nights just to meet him for a few minutes while pastors boarded and detrained. I can't count the number of times I would point out to my friends when we were out on Friday nights and heard the train whistle blow across town. That's my dad, I'd say, still holding on to the same pride that I had when I was seven. Driving the train has its risks. Dad's been involved in at least one major wreck, not his fault, but it reminded us there were all major dangers to this. And there are suicides, too, people who walk right out in front of the track. Obviously, he's had to let a lot of things like that roll off him as much as he could, but it's part of the job. Years ago, Dad told me something that happened to him earlier that week. On the track, you can see about a mile ahead on a clear day. Somewhere up ahead, he could see a large flatbed truck loaded down with steel girders stopped right in his path. Dad was going full speed at about 80 miles an hour or so, and he saw what was coming. He cut acceleration, he threw every brake, but he knew this was not going to be enough. He said that as disaster closed in, he could see clearly into the cab of the truck, and the driver was a young guy, a kid really. And he was still feverishly working. 
At the last possible second, a huge plume of black smoke erupted from the truck's exhaust stacks and it lurched out of the way. He told me it didn't seem possible that tragedy had been averted. Mom and Dad both retired at the end of 2012, and we threw a huge retirement party for both of them. Mom had been a teacher, a florist, and a rural mail carrier and all the time that Dad had been cruising the steel rails. People traveled hundreds of miles to see Dad, his jovial and helpful attitude compelling his old friends to come and visit him and wish him well. I moved my family back home to Southern Illinois in 2013, and I take my kids to the farm frequently to visit their grandma and grandma. Grandpa. Grandma and grandpa, sorry. Last October, Dad called me on a Tuesday night, and with a rarely heard tremor in his voice, he cut to the chase immediately. Well, son, I've got colon cancer. Apparently, his symptoms have been going on for a few weeks, and they were showing no signs of stopping. His colonoscopy that day was fairly conclusive, and then he called me that night. The next morning, I went to see him on his front porch overlooking the cow pasture while it drizzled rain. He sat perched on the picnic table as he did, uncertain of what was to come. Everyone kept asking me what his chances were, and I always had to respond with stock answers. We don't know yet. We need more information. My years of medical training did little to give me any comfort. My dad was very sick. There was one test I was waiting on that would tell me what his chances really were. A CT scan of his liver. Liver involvement in colon cancer comes only with dramatic metastases and is a harbinger of a terrible prognosis. We had to wait two weeks, and finally, a few days after the testing was done, I called down on a Friday night and asked him what we knew. Surgery was scheduled for within the month. There would be chemotherapy over the winter before a second surgery in the spring, then more chemotherapy. His liver was clean. No masses at all. Somewhere, some kid in a stalled-out flatbed truck had stomped on the gas one last desperate time, and the track was clear. Dad's done well since then. He can't work like he wants to right now, and I know that that's working on his mind. He doesn't want to get old, and this is making him feel all the years he's been able to dodge up until now. But this isn't forever. By the end of the fall, he should be done with his chemo. They'll put him back together again. This is not my story. It's your story, Dad. My father is perhaps the person who has most defined who I am. In all my years of school and residency, and even in my job now delivering babies at midnight, I have never struggled much with wanting to quit or say that this is too hard, because my dad keeps working at 2 in the morning. Because tomorrow we've got to move the cows, or fix the fence, or help Greg pour the foundation of his new house, or clean the churchyard, or mow, or anything. If he could do what he needed to do, I could do what I needed to do. My whole thing about it is I'm a father now. I have an almost four-year-old Henry and a six-month-old Evie. I think about being a dad a lot and how difficult it is and the, di the different relationships some of my best friends have had with their dads over the years. I am not destined to be the best dad in the world, far from it, but I can only hope that my kids think of me as well as I think of my dad. Eric, can I have you come on up here? I'm going to set this up here. And guys, um, I'm, I'm, we're going to be singing a song here a little bit. Uh, you know it. Please join me on the chorus. Uh, the song, the, the city of New Orleans is the name of the train my father drove, and it's the name of the song we're going to sing. It was popularized by Arlo Guthrie, who loved, who I love because my mother bought me Alice's restaurant for my confirmation. <laughs> but, but, it was written by Chicago native Steve Goodman. He's the jerk responsible for Go Cubs Go! <laughs> Seriously though, Steve Goodman was a treasure and his music is beautiful, provocative, and funny, and if you don't know him, check him out. But of course, there's this song. It's for you, Dad. We standing? Will hey, you want to sit? Uh, I, I'm, I'm cool. Hey, sit. you know what? Let's stand. You sure? Everyone's been standing. All right, all right.
city of New Orleans Illinois Central Monday morning rail Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders Three conductors, twenty-five sacks of mail And all along the southbound Odyssey The train pulls out of Kankakee Rolls along past houses, farms, and fields Passing trains that have no names And freight yards full of old black men And the graveyard of the rusted automobile Good morning, America, how are you? I said, don't you know me? I'm your native son train they call the city of New Orleans. I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done. I'm dealing cards now with the old man in the club car. Penny a point ain't no one keeping score. Pass a paper bag that holds a bottle. Feel the wheels now rumbling beneath the floor And the sons of poor men porters And the sons of engineers Ride their father's magic carpets made of steel Mothers with their babes asleep Rocking to the gentle beat And the rhythm of the rails is all they feel I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done Nighttime on the city of New Orleans Changing cars in Memphis, Tennessee Halfway home, we'll be there by morning Through the Mississippi darkness, rolling down to the sea and all the towns and people seem to fade into a bad dream And the steely rails still ain't heard the news The conductor sings his song again Passengers will please refrain This train's got the disappearing railroad blues Good night, America, how are ya? I said, don't you know me? Love you, Dad. Your Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy your stories, you might also enjoy Your Chicago. Twice a month, hosts Stefania and Arden chat with the folks who make Chicago's legendary food, keep our streets safe, star in our shows, organize our festivals, play our unique music, and more. For more information, go to yourchicagopodcast.com. 
This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.